Amen. Good morning. And welcome uh, to Sierra Bible Church. If you're uh, new here, let me introduce myself. My name is Jesse, and I get to teach almost every week here, which is a great blessing for me to do that. And if you are new, uh, one of the first steps for us, for you, if you're looking for a church and looking to get plugged in, is after the service, head to the info booth. We have a packet for you at the info booth. And in that packet, it tells you a little bit about who we are. It also has a couple gifts in there for you. One is uh, some free coffee from our coffee shop, a little voucher for that. And then we give you a free book. And, and there you'll find all kinds of information on us and uh, get the opportunity to sign up for our weekly newsletter, which puts out all the information that we have. I don't know how many of you are part of that newsletter, but uh, for those of you who aren't yet, you can sign up for that right now at sbctrucky.com. And at the bottom of the page, we send out a thing every week has family devotions uh, in there. It's got some blogs from the pastors here at the church, in addition to all the other events that we have going on, different resources for you. So partake in that. And then uh, before we get into our study this morning, I just want to mention a couple things, just a couple things of business here. Uh, And while I do that, the guys would love to hand you a Bible if you don't have one this morning. So just keep your hand raised if you don't have a Bible, and they'll hand you one. And then while they're doing that, turn to the book of Ruth. We're going to continue our study there uh, in a moment. A couple things I want to just highlight for you that we're really looking forward to. One is this summer we're launching a brand new women's study for all ages on Wednesday nights at 6.30 p.m. starting June 26th. My wife is teaching that, and she is an amazing teacher. I've mentioned it uh, many times. Uh, she's taught me everything I know, and so she is, she's a better teacher than I am. And I, quite literally, I'm being honest with you, I've had ladies in the church who've heard her teach tell me that they think that she is a better teacher than I am. And so uh, seriously, you want to you wanna dive into this study. So that's in the program for you, uh, for your information, uh, and we're looking forward to launching that. And then um, that's for the... Uh, for the ladies. And then in addition uh, to the ladies, we have something for the kids coming up that we've done for the last several years, our Vacation Bible School program. And that is July 8th through the 11th. And so if you want to sign up for that, if you want to sign up kids for that, you can do all that online, same website, sbctrucky.com. There's a VBS uh, um, link there uh, on that page. And there's two different ways you can sign up. One is you can sign up uh, for your child, and then the other one is you can sign up for a volunteer. So we have a family, they come visit us periodically, they're here maybe 50% of the time up at the lake, and um, uh, they, they got married up here not that long ago, and she absolutely loves kids, and so she kind of wants to always know those dates in advance so she can be here and she can help out. Well, she married a guy who's kind of a, a big, tough guy, and he kind of feels like he's done his part raising kids, he's, he's done raising kids, and so uh, VBS was coming up, and she said, honey, you've got to serve at VBS. And he said, I don't want to teach kids. I don't want to be there. The kids don't want me there. You don't want me being a part of this. And uh, after talking to Brad, he said, you know, I still, still want to serve, uh, but is there a way I can serve and, and not be with kids? And, uh, and Brad said, yeah, we actually need security. We need someone to just roam the parking lot, make sure kids don't dart out in the parking lot when cars are coming and going, and to protect our kids from predators out there. And so uh, that's what he's doing. He signed up for VBS just to be security. And so I, I say that because, hey, hey, if you don't have to just work with the kids, you want to do crafts, you want to help out, set up uh, beforehand, clean up, any of those things are available, we would encourage you to sign up online and help us out. It's a big event for us. Uh, usually well over 100 kids attend. And uh, so we could use your help. So just want to plug you in for that. And then uh, this morning, uh, I'm going to invite Carolyn Trinholm to come up and in and encourage you to partake in uh, a summer event at Kid Lake. So, Carolyn, are you here? Uh, so, welcome, Carolyn. She's awesome. 
She's going to do spoken word right now, so no, I'm just kidding. Pressure. <laughs> Good morning. My name is Carolyn Trump. Hold it closer to your face, not farther. For the last 13 yeah. years, at the beginning of August, we have a family camping trip at Kid Lake. Kid Lake is a PG&E um, hydroelectric uh, lake located up in Soda Springs. It only takes about 25 minutes to get there, less if your car's been there before. So we have five lakeside, um, lakeside uh, sites. They're all, it's just us there. So if your child wants to run around, they can do so safely. Find out who has the best junk food, who has the available, um, the available water floaties, the available canoe or paddle. We, there's, three, there's three islands on the lake. There's um, basking and magazine reading and Bible reading to be done and relaxing in a nice, beautiful spot that God made for us. So if you are interested, there's a sign-up sheet in the back. It's a week-long trip. You can come for the weekend. You can come for two days. You can come just for the day. If you don't feel like camping and it's not your idea of a great time, it's still fun fellowship. So if you have any questions, my phone number is on the sheet, and you can also find me. Yeah, Thank great, you. Great, awesome. So uh, another great time for families to come together. She was joking about the camping thing. I heard a comedian one time say, let's... Camping is doing everything that you do at home, but in the dirt. And uh, if you feel that way, that's okay. Um, but I want to encourage you to sign up. And it's a good place, again, if you're, if you're new and you want to connect with some families, it is an incredible place to do that. Uh, <clears throat> if you would, we have a tradition here uh, where we truly honor God's word, we love God's word, and we stand during the reading of scripture. So if you turn to Ruth chapter 2, and if you're able to this morning, please uh, stand with me as we read from the word of the Lord. Chapter 2, starting in verse 13. And then she said, this is Ruth speaking, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, and you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some of the bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. She ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean among the sheaves and do not reproach her, and also pull out some of the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And Lord, these are your words to us, ancient and old, but just as true today as they were then. Minister to your people, speak to them, transform them, engage them, pursue them, and woo them, Lord. And we trust you for it in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. You may be seated. So each week, um, I've tried to... You know, if you've been here every week, you, you know I've tried to kind of just engage the story we've been in for quite a while. So, I mean, not a super long time, but long enough. In fact, someone uh, from our church last night asked me if we were going to finish the book of Ruth this morning. So those of you who are laughing, you've been here long enough to know. And I said, no, no, but we well finished chapter two. Uh, so the, the story is considered one of the most incredible love stories ever written and literature as a whole, not just biblical text, but as a whole, just a beautiful love story between a man and a woman, the man Boaz, the woman Ruth. Ruth, a Moabite woman who didn't live in Israel, who lived in Moab, uh, who met a man whose son was 
Naomi's son, and he ended up dying. Naomi's husband ends up passing away. Uh, another son of Naomi's passes away. And the move to Moab was just a tragic move for this family. The move to Moab was a move from the place of bread from Bethlehem, God's place, to a place that worshipped false gods and false idols. And the journey was tragic. After 10 years of barrenness, 10 years of pain, 10 years of suffering and depression, Naomi decides to pick up and go back home to God's home, the place of Bethlehem. And in doing so, she enters into the city with Ruth alone. Orpah, the other daughter-in-law, doesn't come. And there was a provision for the people, for the people who were in need, those who were poor amongst God's people. They were allowed to glean from the field. And so we come into this place in the story where Ruth is, is literally gleaning from the field, the leftovers from the field. The edges of the field were left for the poor, as well as, as, as the workers would gather bundles of wheat and barley. Some of that wheat and barley would fall on the ground, and, and they wouldn't be able, by law, they weren't able to go pick it back up, that they'd have to leave it for someone who was poor. It's the equivalent of looking at somebody who's walking along the city and digging in the trash cans for aluminum cans, and then trading in those aluminum cans for money. That's kind of the equivalent of what's happening here, so that they can provide for their family. And so Ruth is in this field. She's in Boaz's field, and Boaz has, uh, has, is allowing her to glean, and he notices her. And he notices that she's gleaning, and he asks his workers, who is this woman that's gleaning in the field? And we start to see God, God moving in Naomi's life, moving in Ruth's life in this text, and there's kind of a renewal. So this is a story of moving from sorrow to joy. And so last week, I shared with you the importance of a church, uh, of, of God's people being a place for not just the church people, but also unchurched people, for those on the outside. So Ruth was someone who was on the outside. She was a Moabite woman. And we start seeing, we see actually, even before this, she makes a declaration coming to Israel. She tells her mother-in-law, she says, your God will be my God and your people will be my people. It's covenant language that she's, she's rejecting her old gods and coming to Bethlehem, this place, to make God her God. And it was a, it was a big step for her to take. And the reason for it is because it, she's leaving behind all guarantee of being married, all guarantee of having any children, all guarantee of even having a blessed life. She just knew that she had to make this move, and in part for the relationship with the Lord. And so this morning, I want to piggyback on last week. In that, in that last week, I talked about how God wants to bring people into the family of God that aren't normally in the family of God. And this week, you'll see that one of the greatest steps, one of the greatest evangelical tools we have to bring people to Jesus is understanding what it means to have a meal with Jesus. And so I've titled the message this morning, Eating with Jesus. Now remember, um, Boaz is a picture of Jesus for us. He's a picture of Christ. So when we see Boaz acting and moving and speaking, we can't, we can't do the disservice of disconnecting him from the Gospels and disconnecting him from what we see in the New Testament in Christ. So what we see in Boaz, we, we see also Jesus doing. And likewise, we're kind of the picture of Ruth. And the first thing that Boaz does, he, he, he does something really interesting. First of all, just notice that he noticed her. Okay, he noticed her. He, Boaz is a godly guy, loves the Lord. We saw that previously. He's out in the field. He's greeting his workers. Lord bless you. God bless you. And as he enters the field, he notices this woman, and he starts to speak to her. As someone last week said to me, do you think, do you think Boaz was actually that godly? 
Or do you think Boaz just really thought Ruth was hot? <clears throat> He's a guy, so there's a good chance that she was attracted to her physically. So we don't want to just ignore that reality, but there is something unique about Boaz. He steps out into the field, and he notices that there's a foreigner in his field and that she's gleaning, and he asks about her. And then as he starts to speak to her, I want you to see, I talked about it a little bit last week, but I want you to see it again because this is really important. Now, now I, I said last week, and I'll, I'll say it again this week, even though I've used these particular titles for different messages to find an overarching theme for us to grab a hold of when we leave here, that we have some handles and things to understand in, in regards to what I'm talking about, another really good title for this message would have been Dating Tips by Boaz. Okay, so, so there's some things here that if you're a single person, and you're desiring and wanting to know what it takes to have a good, healthy marriage or a good, healthy relationship according to God, there's a couple things here that I think would translate well in addition to the big picture for us dining with Jesus. The first thing is this. He says literally to her, he says, I've noticed, take a look at verse 12, I've noticed this. He says, you have taken refuge in God. You've taken refuge in God. Literally, that means you have hidden yourself inside of Jesus Christ. Literally, it means that, 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 he, that she has found God to be her protector, and he notices this about her. Can I, can I just say to you that one of the greatest advantages to a Christian relationship is when both parties in the relationship understand that they must be hidden within God? Husbands, if you ever feel threatened by your wife, there's no better place for you to be than under the wings of the Lord. Wives, if you ever feel threatened by your husbands, no better place to be than in the wings of the Lord. And the reason I say that is because, because it's the only way that you can truly see your spouse the way that they're to be seen, through the gospel of grace and the lens of gratitude that you're hidden in the wings of God. If you're going to marry someone this morning, and I know I'm only speaking to a select few, let me just tell you, let me strongly encourage you, don't marry somebody that is not hiding themselves regularly in the refuge of God, hiding themselves regularly in the wings of Jesus Christ. The best thing we need in our Christian couples are people who understand what it means to hide themselves in the Lord. And, and, and outside of that, if maybe you're in, the, you're in the room and that doesn't apply to you, well, what should apply to you as a Christian is you yourself should be an individual that hides yourself in the wings of God. Part of the blessings come because uh, Ruth has found herself hiding in the wings of God, finding protection in the wings of God. One article from Desiring God says it like this, when we feel like everything is uncertain, when the mountains might as well crash into the sea, the first thing we do, notice this article says now, the first thing we do is remember that our protection is not in better circumstances or in avoiding the problems or in anything on this earth. Instead, our protection, listen carefully now, is the very present Holy Spirit and the rock-solid work of Jesus on our behalf, which has guaranteed our help and promise that we will make it safely home to glory. Amen? Man, you know what's so amazing about this is, first of all, what Boaz is saying here is a prayer. If you read it, Boaz is praying for Ruth. She's asking that God would bless Ruth. And he doesn't even know it yet. What is he doing? He's praying for his wife. It's really funny. The reason I resonate with this so well is because when I was teaching a college study in San Diego, there was a gal who used to come up to me after every service and tell me what I was doing wrong and, and encourage me to do it better. And that gal was Allie, my wife. And, uh, <clears throat> and after the services, she would pray for me. And one of the things that she prayed for every single time, uh, not knowing that she was going to be the answer to that prayer, was, Lord, I pray that one day 
you give Jesse the wife that he needs to be in ministry. Isn't that quite amazing? God, God saw fit in, in the way that he works and his sovereignty under everything. He's moving and he's, he's producing something. We don't see it uh, from Ruth's eyes, but she's not totally clear that God is even present in her circumstance, but he is. Can, can I just tell you this? This is really interesting. If you ever do a study, just a survey of the prayers of Paul, just go into the, the New Testament and see every time that the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, and he has these prayers, all kinds of different prayers, throughout all of the various letters that he wrote to various churches in the area. And if you just step back and understand contextually what's happening in those churches, a lot of them are being persecuted. A lot of them are going through great suffering and tribulation. They're hurting and they're struggling, but they have a hope in Jesus. And Paul, every time he prays for him. There's something you need to notice when he prays. He never prays that their circumstance will change and that God will take them out of their current tribulation, ever, ever. What he prays for instead is something more along the lines of this, to quote Ephesians, that the eyes of your heart would be illuminated to the inheritance that you have in Jesus Christ. It's the encouragement that in your present circumstance and situation, not that you would be taken out of the hardship, not that you would be taken out of the sorrow, but that you would find the good news of Jesus Christ inside the fire that you're experiencing right now. God becomes more alive to us in tribulation. We become more alive to who he is when we're going through suffering. There's just something about it. And so when we pray for people, we don't just pray, you know, Lord, just heal them and take it all away. You know why we don't pray for that? Because it doesn't produce godly people. It produces people of ingratitude, thinking that God works on their behalf. But when we meet God in our tribulation, God can bring great blessings in that so, so the first thing he sees, the first thing that he understands, there's something unique about her, and, and then he invites her to a meal. He woos her, right? Again, this is a kind, of a, uh, kind of a dating tip for some of the guys this morning. I know this might be a little bit too traditional in our day and age, but just notice, just notice that Boaz makes the first move. Okay, Boaz st- steps up to the plate, and he says, okay, first of all, he says, first of all, we're going to make sure that you eat well. Secondly, I'm going to invite you into my home, to my table, and I'm going to feed you. I'm going to invite you out to eat. Ladies, ladies, wouldn't you, those of you who are single, some of you are probably married and you're hoping this for your husband to do the same, just, wouldn't you just love to have a guy just invite you to a meal? A good-looking guy, a guy who loves the Lord, hopefully, right? Uh, not, not just anybody, but somebody that, that would say to you, hey, you know what, I want to eat with you. I want to have a meal with you. And the reason this is important is because Boaz, again, is a picture of Jesus Christ. And can we just feel the love and the grace of God as I declare to you that Jesus makes the first move on behalf of his church? He makes the first move to pursue you and to woo you and to bring you to himself. And what's amazing about that is that that not only has he made the first step to, to come to you and bring you to himself, he continues to pursue you. Do you know why some of you can't escape church even though you desperately want to? Because he keeps bringing you back. There's something about it. You feel it and you sense it. It's the loving Father. It's the loving God. Even though sometimes you're like, you know, I don't want to be at church with those people. And you'll still find yourself wanting to come back with those people because God is bringing you to himself. Because church church is part of God's people, but more than anything else, it's sitting with. What we're doing right now is we're having a meal with Jesus himself. This is the dinner table that we've been invited to, to sit and to dine and to commune with and enjoy our relationship with Jesus Christ. And as he, as he makes the first move, notice the things that Ruth says about him. 
verse 13. Look at verse 13. She says to him, then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, for you have, listen carefully now, comforted me and spoken kindly to me. The Hebrew there, spoken kindly to me, literally means that you have spoken upon my heart. You've spoken directly to my heart. Now, now remember, we're, we're reading just bits and pieces of an amazing story. So these aren't the only words that Boaz said to Ruth. He must have said other things to Ruth that we're not enlightened to. But we know that this is a love story, and we're hinting here that, that there's just this budding romance that's occurring within this particular passage. There's something happening between Boaz and Ruth, and we can't help but ask the question, what's going to happen next? And she says, you've spoken kindly to me. You, you've spoken upon my heart. It, it's originally described, the language here, is the gesture of speaking to somebody while bringing them to your own heart that they would hear your own heart. It's the same kind of language that's used when Jesus sits at the Last Supper and John, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is sitting at the table laying down on Jesus' breast as Jesus is describing what we'll do here in a moment, uh, the, the, the communion table that, that we're eating with Christ and John's there hearing the heart of Jesus. What she's saying is, I, I'm seeing into your heart and you're seeing into my heart and we're connecting at a level that is beyond a, a kind of intimate descrip- description that she can even give. And if you know, if you know this, you know that when we come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, when he speaks into our heart and we see into his heart, trying to describe that intimacy with other people is really wordless. You can't describe it. You understand what I'm saying? Have you anybody been there this morning? Has anyone been so in love with Jesus Christ that you have a hard time sharing what that intimacy looks like? Come on, there's got to be more than just one. Okay, maybe not. Maybe that's why I got to keep preaching to get you there. There's, there's this similar language that's used in a book called Hosea. Hosea is a book like, let me just encourage you, like you have to read your Bible. There are things in the Bible that will blow your mind. You have to read it. You've got to read the Bible. And, and one of the stories is Hosea. God comes to this man, Hosea, who's a prophet of God. He loves God. And God comes to him, he says, Hosea, I need you to do something for me. And here's this prophet of God. He's like, yeah, I'll do whatever you want me to do. He goes, what I want you to do is I want you to go into the sex trafficking world. And I want you to find a woman who has basically been a prostitute her entire life. And I want you to marry her, and I want you to love her. So Hosea, because he's in this intimate relationship with God, is doing something that you and I really cannot find any, any logical reason to do this. None of us in this room would tell our children to duplicate the life of Hosea. But somehow in God's sovereignty, he says, listen, you're going to do this, you're going to pursue her, and he does. And he pulls this woman out of the industry. He brings him to herself. He marries her. He loves her. He woos to her. And, and, then, and then as he does it, she, her response is the response, if you've ever done any study within what's happening in the sex industry world, once a woman is freed from it, there's still a very radical pull to go back. And that's exactly what she does. She goes back and she leaves Hosea. And in leaving Hosea, she ends up getting pregnant with another John. And she ends up having children out of wedlock. What does God do? He says to Hosea, you go back, you find her, you grab her, you love her, you redeem her. And he does it. And we find out the reason that he does that is because God says, the reason I've done this is because this is my people. This is how my people are. And what he's essentially saying to the people of Israel, as well as to the church today, is, is that the, the, the idea of, of 
of worshiping other idols, running after anything that isn't of God, God says is, is adultery. It's cheating on God. And he says, even though that you do that, even though you're filled with sin and you're filled with wickedness, I'm pursuing you. And then I pursue you and I win you to myself and you feel my great love. Right? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. The first time, for those of you who came into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, you had this radical, visceral response. People couldn't shut you up. You probably even had a pastor tell you, calm down a little bit. Right? And, and then eventually what happens sometimes in the faith is we turn our backs on God, maybe for a period of time, maybe for months, maybe for years. And God would say, you've ran from me, but I'm still going to pursue you. Let, can, can, I just, can I just say to you this morning, if that's you, if you're running and I've said this before, if you're running, stop, because he's going to get you. And he's going to love you, and he's going to pursue you, and he's going to transform you. And listen to the words that God uses towards this adulterous people. Hosea chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, and I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Now remember, guys, I said, i got to be clear, because I just don't want anyone to misunderstand I said to the guys, you know, you got to make a move. You got to make a first step. And you got to invite a gal to coffee. You got to invite a gal to lunch or whatever. But don't do this. Don't invite her to the wilderness. Okay? Like the last thing you should do is say, Would you like to have a meal with me in the woods? <laughs> Choose a safer place. Okay, that's just side information for those who need it. He, he, but he says to her, Listen, he goes, Hey, I've spoken tenderly to her, he says, as of the days of her youth, renewal. He says, I'm speaking to her as if she was a child, not like a whore. I'm speaking to her as if she's a brand new baby. He speaks tenderly to his people, he says. Verse 16, and in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me husband, and you'll no longer call me Baal, which is the false gods. For I'll remove the names of Baal. I'll remove your false gods from your mouth, and they shall be remembered no more. He goes on and says this, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and injustice, in steadfast love and mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Isn't that beautiful? He says, I'm going to pursue my people. And if you notice in the text, it's all the 100% emphasis is on what God does within the marriage. It's so beautiful. He says, I will betroth you. I will betroth you. I will betroth you. In what? In righteousness, in justice, in steadfast love, in mercy, in faithfulness. You'll know me. You'll know me. Boaz is giving this picture as he's inviting Ruth to the table. He's speaking tenderly to her. And likewise, the way that God brings people to himself is with his tender words, words of identity. You know what we need a greater ideology of, a greater theology of, is who we are in Christ, who Jesus speaks of us as. So you can walk around knowing that you are a child of God. You're not a slave to Satan. You're not a slave to the things of the world. You're not a slave to even what your parents said that you were or what you should be or what your grandparents said or what your friends said or what your school said. I was told my entire life that I wouldn't make it in, in school as an educated person. And that's not my identity. My identity is that which Jesus speaks of me. And, and God's seeing something in this woman. You know why he sees this identity in her? Back to that first point. She has found refuge in the Lord. Continue to fight for that. So what does he say? He, he doesn't just speak kindly to her. He also invites her to the meal. He feeds her. You know, Jesus invites us to the meal. That's what it means to be a part of the family of God. So that one of the greatest tools we have for evangelism 
is to invite people over to your own house, to your table, and feed them. It's the greatest tool you have. In fact, in the gospel, in the gospels of Luke alone, just Luke, just within the book of Luke, which is the book that tells us the entire story of Jesus Christ in that book, along with Matthew and John, it, it, it tells us this, that there's at least in that book of Luke, there's at least 10, just in the book alone, 10 stories of Jesus dining with various people. 10 different stories. Some of them are formal. Some of them are with sinners, and some of them are with the hungry and those in need. In fact, there's one particular instance, if you remember, Jesus walks up to a man and says, to this man, to a sinner who does not know God yet, and he points at him and says, you, I'm having dinner at your house tonight. Could you just try that as an evangelistic tool sometime? Hey, I'm coming to eat with you tonight. Invite yourself. And part of the reason I say that, and I'm, I'm half joking and I'm half serious, when you are in somebody's home, their guard is down. They're going to be open to you. They're going to be comfortable to you. And Jesus knew this. He said, if, you, if, if we eat together, if we sit down together, we will be able to find common ground. We will have good, healthy conversation. Ten meals alone. In Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, listen carefully to this. The Lord says, on the mountain of the Lord of hosts, he will make for all people a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, rich food, the text literally says this, full of marrow, another translation would say full of meat, another translation would say of fat things, all this to be said if you're a vegetarian this morning, you have a hard time with Isaiah 25, verse 6, for in heaven there will be full meat of aged wine refined, okay, now I don't know where the meat comes from. That's what a vegetarian tells me every time I tell them that text. Well, where's the meat come from? I don't know. It's magic, and it tastes beautiful. <laughs> but in, the, in that book alone of Luke, Jesus sits down, and, and, and the idea is this. The idea that God says, he says, the kingdom of heaven, he actually shares a parable in the gospel. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding feast. The kingdom of heaven is like a wedding. And, and it, he pushes on this even further, and he says, the wedding feast is like this. It's like a wedding feast where those who are invited, speaking to Israel, those who are inviting to come to the wedding, those who are invited to the love story, decided not to come to the wedding feast. They said, no, we're not going. For whatever reason, we're ungrateful. We're not going to the wedding feast. So, so the father of the bride says, you know what you're going to do? You're going to go out into the fields. You're going to dress people. You're going to make them look nice. You're going to invite strangers. You're going to invite the homeless. You're going to invite the poor. You're going to bring them into the party, and we're going to have a party, and we're going to eat. And he says, that's the kingdom of heaven. There's a group of people who don't want to party. So Jesus says, I'm going to grab a group of people who do want to party, and I'm going to bring them into the family of God, and I'm going to enjoy relationship and fine dining with them. That's the kingdom of heaven. That's, the question I want to ask you this morning is, is this, and it'll be in the next steps here in a little bit. Have you opened up your home to people from the outside who you normally wouldn't open up your home to in hopes that those people would come to Jesus? opening up to just enjoy a good meal with someone who doesn't know the Lord. Desiring God has an article says this, speaking in regards to communion, specifically in the holy meal, we recognize that there is one bread and that we who are many are one body as we all partake from this one bread. This is a family meal. Christ has taken us all in, in our diversity, in all our stories, in all our sinfulness, and in all our sufferings. Because there is only one true bread from heaven, all who believe in him are one body, eating and drinking spiritually 
from one great shared hope. The act of eating and drinking together is a unifying, beautiful, and holy time to gather as the people of God to confess sins and receive help as we eat and drink with Jesus. Isn't that good? In addition to that, I want you to see something like, like eating is, it's ultimately, it's ultimately believing. It's an act of faith. When we feast upon God, we're feasting upon God himself in faith that he would increase our faith. And I want you to note that what Boaz does is he invites specifically an outsider to become an insider. Another quote here that's important, I think, is this. Again, it's from a different commentary, but it says, it is doubtful whether many rich men in Bethlehem would have looked over the laborers harvesting their fields, instantly picked out a single foreigner and identified her as someone new. So also perhaps many of us can scan the rows of our people in our church and completely miss all the roofs in our congregation because we are only looking to make friends with people who are like us. We cast an eye over our neighborhood or community and completely overlook those who are outcasts and strangers, the immigrants, the homeless, the poor, the needy. We have eyes, but we do not easily see what Boaz saw because we are not looking for the poor and the outcasts and the different. Isn't that a challenge? Do you want to know why I think Boaz is in part why he was a man after God's heart in this regard? How many of you know who Boaz's mother was? Rahab the harlot. You have a man whose mother stepped out of harlotry, took a step to protect God's people, became a woman after God's own heart, raised a man according to the ways of Yahweh. This man became successful in spite of his background, bought his own field, provided for his people, worshiped God in those fields, declared the goodness and the glory of God in those fields. And now he's looking upon a woman with gentle eyes that is, I am sure his mother taught him to do. His mother knew what it was like to be abused and to be treated in a chauvinistic way. And I'm sure she taught her young son, let me tell you how to love a woman. And now here, all of that education is coming out into play and he's speaking tenderly to an outside woman who can't protect herself and he's bringing her to the table and he's saying, eat with me. Enjoy a meal with me. And what's so crazy here is, is that he, he blesses her beyond anything that we could think or imagine. First of all, if you notice, she feeds, he feeds her, and then she allows her to have, do you, do you take note here? It's, it's 30, what does it say here? Let me, let me go back to the text. Um, help me out if you can see it before I get there. How much does she take home? A whole bushel, someone says, yeah. And ephah of barley she goes home with an ephah of barley some of you are like who cares what's an ephah right like and am i even saying it correctly i don't know what is that the reason so you understand the reason we use the english standard version is it keeps this word ephah and the reason that's important is because if it translated it into an english translation eventually it could change and you, and you could lose how much it really is. So when you see the word ephah, you have to go back and look. And what it literally means is somewhere between 30 and 50 pounds of barley. Okay, it's the equivalent. It's the weight equivalent to six gallons of milk. And so what I, what I wanted to do this morning, I didn't have time to figure out how to dial it in. I actually wanted to fill up six-gallon jugs up here. And I have six of them, six one-gallon jugs. And I wanted to have one of the ladies from the church come up and grab all six of them. 
Okay, because this is what's happening with Ruth. Imagine now she's got all of this weight, and I don't even know if any of the guys in the room without some special hands, you know, could carry that much uh, weight. And then in addition to that, just picture this now. You've got a lady who's up on the stage. She's got six full one-gallon jugs in her hands. And if you look at the text, she went home with leftovers. So now, in addition to that, he hands her a doggy bag of leftover food, and he says, now go. And I, what I would say, it would be great if I could have just painted the picture for you and had a gal up here with, with all of that weight and then a doggy bag in her mouth and said, now walk home. <laughs> and you know why this is amazing? Because, because when, when we invite people to the supper of the lamb, when you invite people to sit with Jesus, when you invite people into a relationship with Christ, when you come to the dining table of Jesus Christ, you are so filled and so blessed that you are staggering underneath the blessings of God. You are crushed beneath the weight of his goodness. Isn't that a good picture? <clears throat> this is why Naomi says to Ruth when she comes home, where have you been gleaning? Where are you getting all this good stuff? Can I... Can I bless us with just another additional piece of information about God's goodness and food? Can I just camp here just for a moment that God is so good to us with food? I mean, we're not to be overindulgent and to be stuffing our faces. I mean, I say that, and every time I go out to all-you-can-eat sushi, I leave with condemnation and guilt, you know? I sinned again, Lord. What we need to do is we need to put, I think, I, what I want to share here is, is I think we need to put liturgy back into our life with food. Liturgy is just the way we live life, the way we do things. Literally what I mean is, is that Christianity has lost, has lost its identity in feasting. And the reason I say that is if you just go back in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, God's people knew how to feast. You'll see, actually, especially in the book of John, we went through it, is the Feast of Booths and the Feast of Tabernacles. They had all of these different seasons in life where they feasted, much like we do with Thanksgiving, but even to a greater deal. Because for Thanksgiving, we say, you know what? We're, gonna, we're basically going to celebrate for two days. It's actually really ridiculous, right? We, we celebrate on Thursday, and we shove our bellies full of turkey, and then, and then we celebrate with all of our gratitude and thankfulness by getting more goods and services on Black Friday. So we have two days, one day to be thankful and another day to crush each other under the weight of getting the next materialistic good. Now, I know that's not you, but that's the kind of the American way. The Jewish people weren't like that. They were like, you know what? We're going to do a feast. Well, how long is the feast going to last? Oh, you know, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, maybe Monday. And they would feast for days. Even the weddings went for days. They knew how to celebrate. And it wasn't all the time. It was liturgical, if you will. Meaning, when I say that liturgical, meaning they had seasons where they said, you know what, this is a season where we feast and we dine and we fellowship and we celebrate and we sing. Can't, don't you think we should redeem that? I mean, and it starts within your own local home. For us as a family, it doesn't work out always. I don't want to lie to you. I don't want to paint a picture to you that somehow that in the Pastor Richardson home that everything is good, fine, and dandy. Dinner time is chaos. But we sit down every dinner time. You will sit there. I don't care how much you scream and cry. We will celebrate and we will feast. One day you will thank me for these meals. God's goodness in food. I mean, listen, listen to what the Bible says in regards to just food alone. Genesis 2, 9. Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant 
to the sight and good for food. Listen, God didn't have to make a tree beautiful, and he didn't have to make it tasteful. But Genesis declares the goodness of God. He made it beautiful to look at so that you would enjoy it. That's why art exists. So you could, just for the, for the pure reason alone that you can rejoice in it and say we have a, a God who is a beautiful God, a God who rejoices in the artistic, and he is great and he is awesome. And it says the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It also tells us in the Old Testament that God ordained seasons and times for feasting and celebrating. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat or drink, do it for the glory of the Lord. John 6, 27, do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures the eternal, eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal, pointing us to the ultimate meal that is actually Jesus himself. We dine upon our Lord. So let me just ask the question this morning. Where are you gleaning? Where have you gleaned? Are you staggering under the blessings of God? This is the question that Naomi asks. Naomi, where have you been eating? Where did you get this blessing? John Corson says, he says this, we're so busy with the menus of Moab, we often find it difficult to answer this question. Can you talk more readily about the latest movie you've seen than about the latest spiritual understanding you've received? Is it easier to talk about the TV show you watched last night than about the truths of the word that you missed this morning? Where are you eating and where are you gleaning? I had dinner from, with some friends from the church last night, and, and because I partake in a lot of different meals, let me just tell you, as a, as a lead pastor, one of the things that I get to do often is eat with people. And in doing that, and I, it is really easy for me to kind of compare different conversations and what we're talking about and what's happening. And the blessing with last night was it did not take very long for the conversation to just veer and turn directly upon spiritual things, to talk about Jesus, to talk about the goodness of God, to talk about different doctrines and theology and where the church is headed and why we're headed in that direction and, and what is God doing in your life and what is God doing in my life, things that actually make life meaningful to live. Where are you gleaning? Where are you eating from? It's a good question. She comes home full of food. She gets to not only, another picture so you understand that that amount of barley, that amount of food, equipped 50 pounds worth, the average daily worker, the, the worker who worked on a daily basis, he consumed between one to two pounds uh, a day, a week. I better look at my notes. <laughs> One or two pounds a day. Make, make sure my math is correct here. Someone's going to correct me. Which is half a month's wages for Ruth. She went home with, she went home with 15 days full of foods and, and a doggy bag. And she brought it home to her mother-in-law. And then she also got to partake in the meal. Isn't that the blessing of God? Where have you been gleaning? So here's a couple, couple next steps for us this morning that that I think are important for us to think about, for us to consider, is this. I've been trying to do this each, each week to just give us something to walk away from and say, okay, Lord, like after hearing what it is that you've done for us, that you've invited us to this table, which we're about to partake in here in a moment, that God invites us to a meal and he invites the outsider to a meal, what is it that God would have me do? And here's what I would encourage you in the church. And these are gonna be on your program each week. So if you came this morning, and you got a bulletin, you got a handout, it says this. Number one, commit to having a meal with Jesus this week. Take time to, 
to just set aside a time in your week, and it, I, I could tell you every day, and it should be every day, but you got to start somewhere and have a time of prayer. Have a time where you sit with the Lord. I shared with the first service, and some of you have heard the story before, but I'm, I, I always hear people say, I've never actually heard that story, and so I repeat my stories on occasion. Some of you love it, and those of you who don't, just bear with those who like it, okay? Um, years ago, when Allie and I were dating, she broke up with me after a few months of dating. And it was a tragic thing for me. I was really depressed and sad. And so uh, a couple buddies of mine grabbed me out of my apartment. They said, we need to go to Costa Mesa, and we need to go hear John Corson speak. I just quoted him a minute ago. And a real large church sanctuary sits about 3,000 people, multiple services, real large church at the time. And so in my depressed state, I said, okay, I'll go up there. So we traveled a couple hours from San Diego to Costa Mesa. And uh, I was sitting in the service, and John was preaching out of the Psalms. I still remember exactly what he was saying. And then after the service, my buddy said, you've got to go up to John Corson and, and you've got to tell him uh, what it is that you're going through so that he can pray for you. And I was still, wor- I was working full-time at the church, part-time at General Nutrition Centers, pushing multivitamins down people's throats uh, just to make ends meet. That's just where I was at at that time of life. And, um, and while I was there, I didn't really want to go see John Corson. There was a big line to see him. And, you know, he's celebrity pastor type. And I just didn't want to do it because I was kind of doing that stuff at San Diego, I would go pray with people as a pastor up front and all that. And, and so <clears throat> I end up standing in line, get to the front of the line, and I get to John Corson. Some of you might know who John Corson is or who he was. But when he was younger, when I was there, this is almost, man, 16, 17 years ago, a big, healthy, strong John Corson. I mean, he was a big dude. He, big dude. He, he pictured, in my mind, it, it pictured, like, I picture what Saul would have looked like. You remember when, when the people were like, who do we want for king? We want the tall, big, strong guy. Get that guy. That's kind of like John Corson, just this big guy. And so here I am. I walk up to him, and I'm intimidated both by his stature and by his status. And I say, you know, the thing that makes me look like a man. So there's this girl, and she dumped me. <laughs> and he kind of looks at me and goes, yeah? And I go, yeah, man, I, I think I'm supposed to marry her. John takes his big paw, sets it on my shoulder. The weight of his arm is enough to make me feel crushed, only for him to look at me in the eye and, and quote this to me, Isaiah 30. Woe to you, Israel, who seek the counsel of man and not of God. Got it. <laughs> See you later. <laughs> then he said this. He said, when was the last time you had a hot dog with Jesus? Which I was kind of funny. It was like a hot dog, specifically a hot dog? Well, <laughs> it's been a while. And uh, he said, you need to sit down with the Lord, and you need to have a meal with the Lord, and you need to study Scripture, and he'll speak to you. And then he said, let me know what happens. I laughed. Large church. If you know anything about John, you know that actually he was guest speaking in Costa Mesa. He actually preaches in Applegate, Oregon. I was like, you'd never hear from me. And he goes, just try to reach out to me. A few months go, goes by. I went and had a meal with Jesus. Jesus told me Allie was going to be my wife. I didn't share that with her because that would be weird. <laughs> and um, she went on a missions trip. And she had a meal with Jesus. And while she was in Mexico, the Lord told her, you're going to marry Jesse. She came back from the missions trip. Kid you not. 
First, first day she comes back, she walks up to me. She says, where's my ring? And I said, I don't have one. But I'll go swipe three credit cards and get one. That's exactly what I did. And uh, <laughs> maxed them all out. Not a wise thing to do. Um, and uh, she got a decent ring, I'll tell you. And uh, still paying for it. But um, I'm just kidding. And not still paying for it, no. It was a joke. 30 years later. Wow. Um, and, uh, man, what was I going to say there? <laughs> so, after, you know, coming back and hearing from the Lord, and we got married. Well, we got engaged. I got engaged to her July 3rd. And I had to work at GNC on July 4th. I mean, he was a church guy, you know, holidays. I had to work in retail, and... I was working a lot, and I just was excited. I could care less. I was getting married, and I worked on July 4th, and, and a, a couple with a couple kids walked into the, the General Nutrition Center, and I was thinking uh, moments before that I needed to somehow contact Applegate to let John Corson know that God had used his words to us about eating with Jesus to lead us to, to where we're at. And uh, this is a true story. I looked up, and the couple was John Corson and his wife and his kids. And... Um, and I looked up and literally went, John Corson? <laughs> yeah. And uh, I told him the story, and he said that he remembered. I don't know if he really did, but he said that he did. And his wife was just giddy because that's the way it is. The guy's like, oh, yeah, God works. The way like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. And their kid said, I knew God gave me a headache for a reason. That's why they came into the store to get. And all that to be said, I, I share that because, because it is important for us as we come and we dine with Jesus. I want you to take seriously how important it is for you to eat with him and to sit at his table. That's the first next step. Second one, commit to inviting somebody to your home and have a meal with you. And maybe it's not your home. Maybe it's a coffee shop. And don't be weird. This isn't a time for you to like sit down with them and go, hey, I invited you to a coffee bar because, well, my pastor says if I don't, you're going to burn in hell. And, you know, I got to tell you, you got to come to Jesus because hell's going to be really hot and you don't want to go there. And uh, don't, like, don't do that. that. That's not evangelism. It's not evangelism. And I know someone might disagree with me, but that's not evangelism. Evangelism is building relationships with people and loving them the way that God does. Speak kindly to them. Overbless them beyond anything that anybody has ever done for them before. And then, and then at the end of the meal, as you ask questions and get to know that person, or at the end of the cup of coffee, whatever it is, then just simply ask, how can I pray for you this week? And then either pray for them there if they'll let you, or just pray for them during the week. And I, I bet you anything, if we take this approach, God will bless his kingdom beyond anything that we could ever think or imagine. I believe that deeply. Because I've seen God do it in my own life. And if there's one thing I know, if God works in my life as a humble guy from Truckee, California, God's going to work in all of our lives in a great way. So as the team comes forward, Brad, if you want to come up the worship, and if our um, elders and, and deacons, if you're here this morning, if you could come and help serve communion... Uh, John, if you could come on up, um, make sure I got enough people here. And I'm just going to talk just here for a moment. Go ahead and um, start handing out the bread. So the guys will hand you the bread, and then the juice will partake together. Hold them until, uh, until we partake together. But um, as we come to the table here, here's kind of just to set the stage a little bit for us. And I, I already have done so, but... Again, the, the reason Jesus instituted 
communion for us as believers is to remember the great work of God, to remember what God has done on our behalf. And that is that you were once an outsider and you've been invited to the supper of the lamb. You've been invited to a wedding feast. And so could you just take a few moments as the bread and the juice are being handed out to you, take a few moments to prepare your heart for that kind of status before the Lord, that kind of posture. Lord, thank you for inviting me to the greatest meal ever. And I know this, this communion doesn't have the same flavor as, as maybe a, a nice steakhouse, but it isn't about the flavor of the tongue. It's about the flavor of the soul. It's about the taste of the soul. The soul desires and needs what it is that you're partaking in, which is Jesus himself, one with you. So just take a few moments, and then we'll partake together.
in the Old Testament, Jesus put in place the Passover, which was the meal that celebrated that God had passed over all the firstborn of Israel with the blood placed over the doorpost of each family that had a newborn child. And at the Passover, it was celebrated every year the goodness of God to save God's people. And it wasn't until Jesus sat down at what is known as the Last Supper that he said, everything that you have been doing in this meal and this celebration has pointed to this moment. You didn't know it, but the Passover was just a small picture of the reality that in Jesus Christ I will pass over through my bloodshed, not upon a doorpost, but upon a cross. That all of my people's sins would be forgiven. Anyone that proclaims in faith a relationship with Jesus Christ would be spared destruction and turmoil. And then after that supper, for the last 2,000 plus years, individuals who have fallen in love with Jesus have celebrated this great meal that we are partaking in now. What we do this morning is we share in the history of generation after generation after generation that it is so good to sit and dine with Jesus Christ. And it also points us to the future that one day the wedding supper of the Lamb, when we will exit this place known as earth and we will sit within heaven itself with no more sin or pain to mar our experience, no more tragedy seen from just an earthly perspective, but we will celebrate with Jesus every single day. There will be a meal with Christ and his saints beyond anything that you could ever fathom or think. Let your faith be increased because of this truth. Amen? Amen. Jesus, we thank you that you came to live a life we could not live, to forgive us of the sins we could not forgive ourselves of, to transfer from us our sin to yourself and your righteousness to us. We thank you that you have died on our behalf and you have shed your blood and allowed your body to be broken, that our souls would be made whole. We celebrate you in gratitude, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You may partake. His body broken on our behalf. And we're going to sing a little bit, but again, I just want to encourage those of you who might be new to our church, uh, to please stop by the info booth, get connected. We'd love to get to know you more and see how we can better serve you. God bless you guys. Have a great afternoon. Hey, friends, let's stand together. And uh, one of our core values of worship is that we will celebrate the King. And uh, as a team, we invite you guys. Let's join together in song in these next two songs. Let's sing. <clears throat>